Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Pastor Douglas Wilson and financial advisor David L. Bonson about the themes from their new book, Misinflation, the truth about inflation, pricing, and the creation of wealth. Now available at canonpress.com. David, thanks for coming on. It's really good to uh, visit with you this way. Uh, what I thought I'd do is maybe explain uh, what we're talking about and why we're talking about it. Um, uh, we, we have a book coming out, you and I, and the book is basically an exchange of letters where I write you questions, a number of questions that have nagged at me for years, and you are kind enough to answer them. So, uh, and the book is called Misinflation, and uh, it is, uh, I think it, it's going to be a paradigm ch- changer for a number of conservatives, or what I call hard money conservatives, and this was the question that provoked me to write you in the first place. And, uh, and then maybe you can explain for a minute what provoked you to answer, <laughs> right? <laughs> Whatever possessed you to answer this question. Um, so I've been a conservative uh, since high school. I, I read a book by William Buckley and subscribed to National Review when I was in high school, and, and I've been following hard money conservatives for my entire adult life. And some time ago, it occurred to me that hard money conservatives have been predicting economic catastrophe of a particular nature for decades, and it just never happens. And it's and it struck me that, uh, that we were like, we hard money conservatives were like dispensational theologians who keep predicting the rapture, and the rapture keeps not happening. And, and yet the true belief goes on. Uh, so that was my question. Where, where did all the inflation go? Why, why doesn't a loaf of bread cost $100 by now? Um, and so that was the question I posed uh, to you initially. And uh, why do you think that question is worth answering? Well, I think that um, some of the background you've given to where your questions came from and just your sort of experience in intellectual inquiry around all these issues, it may be helpful for me to add some of my own journey there because our two respective journeys coming together in the way they did are are sort of what created our correspondence and ultimately this book. And in a lot of ways, my um, process was very similar, only I think you ended at a place of real questioning as to why this was. And I ended at a place some some years back of real frustration because I became convinced that um, there was a lot of harm being done by largely well-intentioned people, maybe not always well-intentioned, but we don't have to focus on some of the fringier elements. I think just intellectually, there was a a well-meaning school of thought that genuinely believed in a lot of doomsdayism, particularly inflationary doomsdayism, and oftentimes with a lot of premises that you and I would agree with. We're, we're more constitutionally minded, more limited government minded, mm-hmm. uh, have a aversion to excessive spending and debt. And I think a lot of these people have the same commitments and yet they concluded things that were, I think, very sensationalistic, 
Um, yes, there is an overlap almost with, um, with a sort of doomsday-ish eschatology. And like the end of the world dispies, the, the impact was a destruction of credibility that I think was problematic for the cause that I most cared about, which was not saying, oh, inflation is going to ruin the world, but rather that there is such thing as sound economics. And there is a um, Christian foundation to wealth that should not be discredited by some of these uh, false predictions and, and some of these things that were proved to be misguided. So, so that led me onto a journey. Um, and at some point, you must have been inside of my head and known that I had gone through this journey. You had your inquiry, and then it led to our, our correspondence. And now, and now here we are. So um, since we're talking about inflation, uh, let's get the political issue sort of addressed right away. And, and, um, and it seems to me that there are two sides to that. Um, the rise in the prices of many commodities is uh, a possible indicator of inflation, but not a necessary indicator of inflation. Is that fair enough? Okay, so um, uh, nevertheless, because lumber and gas and all these prices are going up, it's politically advantageous for the right to wrap those price increases around Joe Biden's neck. And it's also politically advantageous for the left to say, no, no, it's not really inflation. Um, and it's all going to be great. Don't, don't worry about it. Now, what, what we're saying is that it's not inflation, but it's not going to be great. Uh, we're, do, we're doing a bunch of uh, bad, uh, we're doing a bunch of destructive things in the economy. So uh, could you talk a little bit about what is, if, if inflation is not the threat, what, what is the threat? And then we'll come back to how, how can we possibly say that inflation is not happening? Yeah, so I, I would say that um, the primary threat is what you're asking about. Like, what is the, the right. underlying threat? Or myself working in finance, if there was one problem I could solve uh, compatible with my Christian worldview and in line with what I see on, on sort of the, the global... Uh, economic uh, landscape, um, I think the largest thing impacting people's quality of life, because that's how what I believe the objective of economics is, is this aim of human flourishing. And I think that stagnation and subpar economic growth is by far the world's largest economic ailment. And so inflation um, can impede economic growth. Uh, it's very rare that that happens. Usually people talk about inflation as being coincident with an overheated economy. And they, and they use these terms that I've never understood what they mean, like things are going too well or they're growing <laughs> too quickly or something. Um, you know, you remember all the times people get a raise and they get so upset that they're making too much money, you know? And I mean, it's, it's kind of silly, really. But um, there are periods where, and the 70s were a, a better example, it was limited, but where you have what they will refer to as stagflation, where prices are going higher, and yet you have very stagnant economic growth and high unemployment. Well, right now we have record low unemployment and um, high wages, 
and yet we do have commodity price inflation. One of the things uh, in one of our chapters in the book, we talk about commodity prices as an imperfect indicator as you preface this question, because commodity prices are higher right now than they were pre-COVID, but in a lot of cases, and, and this was more true at the time we were writing our letters than it is in the last four weeks you know, with, with Russia, Ukraine, and so forth, commodity prices were back to where they were in 2014. And in some cases, they're still not to where they were in 2005, six, and seven. So commodity prices are not very highly correlated with the overall inflation level, macroeconomically speaking. Um, and so the question then becomes, what, what are the indicators to look to in terms of this overall economic fear? And I would argue that inflation would be one of them, but unfortunately the larger indicators I see speak to downward pressure on inflation over time in a secular or structural context, because I believe we face stagnation and economic growth that is directly attributable to excessive indebtedness. Okay, so uh, in the you've used the phrase Japanification. Uh, uh, is, that, is that what you're talking about under the heading of this downward pressure, Japanification? What, what do you mean by Japanification? Yeah, so as of right now, Japan is the, the country we can use for nomenclature because they're the largest country on earth to have ever experienced 30 plus years of economic stagnation. Essentially, you're going back to, you mentioned some of the books you're reading when you were in high school. Economic, uh, Japan's collapse from economic relevance took place when I was in high school. And I'm now an old man as well, okay? I mean, <laughs> 30 years ago, Japan, what we were, Donald Trump, not then president, but then Donald Trump was writing op-eds in the late 1980s to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, saying Japan's eating our lunch. They're going to become the economic superpower because the U.S. had inadequate trade and regulatory policies. And most of us remember that there was that period of uh, Japan's economic ascendancy. Mm -hmm. And that died in 1989-90. And since then, they've had essentially 0% real GDP growth and have done everything under the sun to create some form of inflation because the debt levels are so high, they need to inflate away some of the debt, pay back a dollar of debt, or in their case, yen, with something worth less than a dollar. It's a pretty um, nice way to manage your debt. So uh, it's legal. Um, you can't give someone 50 cents to pay back a dollar, but you can give someone a dollar that's only worth 50 cents. And, and it's a, a very effective when one becomes overly indebted. Japan's problem is they couldn't create the inflation. The Japanification is a result of them being in a debt deflationary spiral where more debt led to more um, government fiscal intervention and more monetary intervention, which led then to uh, a spiraling effect, a diminishing return of economic productivity. And they did have other circumstances that piled on, bad demographics. They had a lot of old people and not a lot of young people. And then they had a lot of uh, years and or decades really in which they weren't having babies and weren't having enough babies. For years, people would say, well, don't worry about America because we're not like that. We still have a higher birth rate. Well, now our birth rate is, is dropping down to Japanese levels too. 
So all that to say Japanification is the spiral, the negative feedback loop of debt deflation begetting more debt deflation and coming out of it with no economic uh, vitality, no economic growth. This is 30 years now it's happened. It is happening. Japanification is happening in the United States. I would argue since our financial crisis, some would argue it started before then. And certainly in Europe, United Kingdom as well, any large developed nation with debt levels relative to GDP, their economic output, where the debt overrides the GDP. Ours is 130% now post-COVID. Japan's is 250%. So they're still double what we are in debt to GDP. So we have a long way to go to continue screwing this up. <laughs> All right. We have a lot of scope, in other words. Um, so, uh, it, so just to be clear, um, the people who are predicting hyperinflation, uh, who have been predict predicting it for a long time now, are basically saying that when this volcano blows, it's going to destroy our civilization. It, you know, hyperinflation is sort of a, a T.S. Eliot's uh, bang version of going out. And what you're arguing is that, no, it's going to go out with a whimper. Um, so this is a, a country like Japan sinking slowly into the sea uh, and there's nothing you can do about it past a certain point. There's nothing you can do about it. And the end result is just as catastrophic. That, that's right. And, and maybe you could argue more morally problematic. And how could it be more morally problematic? Well, a lot of the people, Doug, that, that predicted hyperinflation wanted that collapse because they wanted a rebuild opportunity. Yeah. And it's not necessarily my theological belief that you can only rebuild out of a collapse. Um, I'm, I'm more comfortable with the idea of incremental progress and, and influence. But at least that's one thing that camp had going for it is they saw the light at the end of the tunnel was after this economic uh, meltdown, there'd be this chance to kind of rebuild things differently. Um, where I think the other, that other t part of the T.S. Eliot line is how did the world end with a, with, with a um, whimper, not a bang, you, the, the, yeah. inverting it. The problem with Japanification is you don't get that moment to which all of a sudden there's a changing of the guard or, or that kind of um, civilizational alert that says this is not working. Now, I think that... Um, you, you do have pockets. Uh, right now we see both left-wing and right-wing populism. There, there's gonna be a greater level of people disgruntled if real GDP growth doesn't pick back up to trend line. And this is, I think, a, a point I make in the book. Um, I don't believe people care about income inequality and I don't think they care about wealth inequality when their standard of living is going higher. Nobody cares about how much richer Bill is getting when they're getting richer. But when people are not getting richer and they see Bezos and Musk and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, then all of a sudden it, it draws attention to that. And so it, it does exacerbate social ills as well. But ultimately, when I say morally problematic, I believe God made men and women to be productive in society. And uh, subpar economic growth limits opportunity for productive growth, which goes against the um, entire foundation of creational economics. Okay, so if someone's watching this and they're thinking to themselves, they're good, true blue conservative, 
and they're saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> you know, I've, it's sort of an article of faith for me that if you print a ton of money, you're going to inflate the currency. Um, it, just so that they will give us a hearing, for, uh, because I have to say, over the course of our exchanges, you persuaded me. Right? I, you answered my questions. For that, I thank you. Uh, if they want to go check, where's a good place to check? Um, if it's not commodity prices, if there were actual true inflation, which has happened in history in different economies at different times, uh, Bolivia, I think, in the 80s, and and um, I think one time in Bolivia, their, their, big, their largest import was paper money that they were importing from Germany. Um, so Bolivia... And um, the Weimar Republic, uh, you know, their inflation can happen. Uh, Japan tried to make it happen. They didn't. So where would someone go in our system to check to see if uh, there were actual inflation occurring? Where would you send them? I would send them to the bond market. And and, And so first of all, I have to caveat that I believe you can have inflation in certain goods and services while not having it in others. And this is a really important contribution of Austrian economics is ridding ourselves of the notion that there is such thing as a price level, that all things going up in tandem, um, because we know that economic actors respond in different ways at different times to different things, because that's what economics is, is human action. And so even the inflation of 2021, was there inflation, meaning, did prices go higher? There's no question. But um, if you bought a used car in 2021, you might've paid 30% more than the year before. But if you were just adding on to your movie collection habit, Netflix was $11 a month and a VCR used to cost $800, you know? So, so there's not, inflation doesn't manifest itself in the same way. I believe there's inflation where there's government subsidy. That's where I think inflation is heightened. And that's in housing, college tuition, and healthcare. But people cannot find another category than those three, where there's been structural inflation for a decade, two decades, three decades. Can but, you name, and, those, name those three again? Housing, housing education? college tuition, and healthcare. Okay. And, and those are the three largest areas of government interference in the economy. And so that the government subsidy creates an inflation that again is not the monetary inflation that Milton Friedman warned us about. It is specific targeted inflation. Where do we see monetary inflation across a whole economy? The bond market would be pricing it in. Why? Because people are rational. God made us with reason. Trillions of dollars of people's money acting out of its own self-interest, capital searching for what it always searches for, its most rational use, trillions of dollars has said, we will go loan the government money for 10 years for 2%. So, So what that bond market is telling you is we don't believe there will be sustainable inflation. And by the way, we don't believe there will be sustainable growth. Because if we thought there was going to be that growth level over five, 10 years, we would want four, five, six percent. We'd put the money somewhere else. That's you, right. If, they, if they're anticipating growth, they're putting the money somewhere else. If they're anticipating uh, hyperinflation, they wouldn't be doing this with the government. 
the Weimar Republic, the Bolivia, uh, Argentina, even the 70s stagflation in the United States, the bond market was between 10 and 20 percent um, to price in to pay oneself for the impact of inflation. So um, I've yet to see a better indicator or predictor of inflation than the multi, multi-trillion dollar bond market. You recall James Carville's famous line when he was consulting for the Bill Clinton campaign in the 90s. He said, if reincarnation is true, I want to come back as the bond market because he said <laughs> it was the most powerful economic force on earth. Okay. So one of the things that we talked about in the book was... Um, we're not just talking about, well, there's several things that I wanted to get to, but one is inflation is not just the amount of money that's available chasing the amount of goods, but it's the found in the participle, the chasing part. The The money has to act, the, what is known as velocity, right? So it's not just, if uh, the government prints a boatload of money and then a bank sits on it, then you don't have inflation there's no inflationary pressure, right? That is, that's right. This is a tough concept to understand. I felt, I felt like our correspondence was pretty good at laying out complicated ideas pretty simply and succinctly. But um, money doesn't get created when um, we put money in our checking account. It gets created when a bank makes a new loan. And um, a bank can make a new loan off of money that the Fed printed, so to speak, but then that money has to be turned over in the economy. So Irving Fisher's famous quantity theory of money, which is largely accepted by monetarists, Keynesians, Austrians, the notion that you essentially have the money supply times its velocity, its turnover, um, divided by the amount of goods and services in the economy. That gives you a price level. So this is all sort of algebraic, if you will. So, so if the government gave Americans a big stimulus payment, you know, printed up a b bunch of money and they said, here, America, go out and go on a bender, um, spend a bunch of money. And then the people you bought things from, they're supposed to go spend that money. And they were trying to get the velocity going, but then, but then everybody just sort of sat on the money and you know, maybe bought a gun. <laughs> well, or or the first round of people did spend it, and then the second round don't, and the third round really don't. So velocity would be, you go out and spend it, and and maybe you bought a new suit, and the tailor goes and he buys, uh, you know, a vacation, and then the hotel. You're, you you get this turnover of economic activity, and I do think that the third round of the COVID stimulus, you know, it's hard these days because we can't even keep track of how much cockamamie yeah. money that they <laughs> that they spent. But I think that the most superfluous of them was the Biden administration's third round. And I think um, some of that got spent into the economy, but then but the velocity didn't move higher, meaning whoever spent it, spent it with someone who didn't spend it. Right. OK, so uh, I think the thing that concerns uh, the both of us the most, and I think we concluded with this is uh, the problem of what I called Uncle Wyatt. Um, yeah. So let's say you've got a, a gold bug, Uncle Wyatt, who's been uh, living in his hunting cabin for you know a number of years, and he's saving up gold coins and silver coins, um, hedging against the the cataclysm, the time when the hyperinflation will hit, and then he'll have his gold coins. Uh, 
the concern, I'd like you to speak to this, the concern is uh, not, not whether he's right or wrong so much about the money, the value of his silver and gold, but what kind of person he's turning into. Right. Uh, what is it? What does I've got to uh, I've got to be risk averse. I've got to hedge against every possible uh, disaster scenario due to the spirit of liberty, the spirit of entrepreneurship. Well, it, it uh, suffocates it and, and and it exterminates it over time to where you build a sort of um, cultural personality that, that and this has largely been true in a lot of this camp of, of types of people you're talking to, where over time we become accustomed to being non-productive economically. It's accepted and even couched in terminology of, oh, the government's spending so much anyways, they tax so much anyways, they inflate so much anyways. And meanwhile, not just for Uncle Wyatt and his five to 20 years in his cabin, but multiple generations go by. Where, where people accept this sort of non-engagement in the public square. And I think that uh, that lack of activity in the marketplace, first of all, does not lead to everyone disengaging. It just leads to the good guys dis- disengaging, people who otherwise should know better and maybe even bring something productive to the table. But in the meantime, Silicon Valley is not gonna sit down. You know, We, we, we talk a lot in our camps, Pastor, about how upset we are at big tech. But, but big tech has no Uncle Wyatt's in it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're very productive and active and, and engaged people. And so I think that once we, the first step to us kind of being able to transform big tech and Wall Street, Hollywood, arts and cinema, to the, the various sectors that we, we care about as Kyperian reform believers is um, to, to kind of remove ourselves from the sociology of Uncle Wyatt. And, and a lot of it I have sympathy for because I think it came from a place that had some theological connection and certainly a sociopolitical connection, but it's what I really feel called to help break down is it isn't doing us any good. We, we can get a lot of uh, economic leverage with engagement and productive growth in the marketplace, innovation, creativity, ideas, hard work, you know. All, all of those things. And I think that's what I'd most love to see uh, in the generation to come is us to have a lot less of the Uncle Wyatt mentality and a lot more of a Kyperian mentality. So how, if I could just be the devil's ad- advocate for a minute, um, let's say you've got a group of high talent individuals, they're industrious, they would love nothing more than to build a Kyperian community or, or, or Kyperian industry. They want to be risk takers, uh, unlike the fellow in the parable who buries the talent that he was given. And they, they, let's say they're persuaded by the theological case that we make. But they say, but what's the point? If I go out there and build a successful business, the government's going to come in and take, take a bunch of stuff. And the only way I can survive is the way Silicon Valley does, which is by entering into the big business government uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, you know, I, I will, uh, I'll play the game and I'm, I'm going to use the government against my competitors. I, I, I have to, I don't want to play that game. And that appears to me to be the only way to play the game. Is there a place where someone, uh, where a true, is there a place where a true free marketer who's not risk averse c- couldn't go 
and and actually make a dent? Well, I really do believe there is. And I believe that that the premises in the question, I know you're playing devil's advocate, but I think a lot of that um, thinking comes from someone in search of a justification for the conclusion they already came up with. Because right. I'm very willing to say that big tech, once they have climbed a gazillion ladders, then wants to kick over the ladder and keep out competition. But I'm not willing to say that for 95% of the technology sector that has also been very successful and innovative and productive and profitable and, and, and yet not necessarily uh, partnered with government to, to achieve that. Most of the cronyism in our economy, whether you're talking about the energy sector, the um, financial sector or technology, is largely companies that have already made it and then seek the um, protective partnership of government to, to protect their fiefdom, not to build it. And so I don't okay. think it's a good excuse to avoid building successful enterprise. So there's a guy, there's a guy in his garage with a great idea. You're going to say to him, hit it, hit it hard, go for it. You can build the way these other guys built. And then when you have got a multi-million dollar company, just say no at that point. That's right. And, and you used earlier the analogy of sort of this um, right-wing uh, economic uh, personality compared to the dispensational uh, eschatology. Well, you, in your experience, Pastor, have you found a lot of those who claim to believe the rapture is coming any moment and the world is a mess and going to stay a mess? Have you found a lot of them to be pretty productive in cultural <laughs> endeavors and in political endeavors, in, in the right to life and you know th things that they may engage in the community? That's been my experience. I've seen a lot of really useful premillennialists out there. Yeah, I've, I've seen the same thing where... Um... Uh, J uh, Jerry Falwell Sr., for example, um, built Liberty University because he wanted a Protestant Notre Dame. And I thought, wait a minute, I thought the Lord was coming again. <laughs> that, well, that, that's right. And I thank God for that inconsistency. You know, uh, I, I, that um, I can't remember whose term it was, but that operational postmillennialism, um, I think you can be operational entrepreneurial. If you believe there's some big bad wolf out there who's going to end up being unfair to you once you're successful, tax you too much, say mean things about you or something. First of all, I'll let them in on a little secret. Once you've built up a whole lot of money, you're going to have a lot of protection against the bad things they might want to do to you. You know, right. Cap capital uh, can can serve a great purpose for the kingdom defensively as well. But but my point is that um, I I think those things are overwrought, and to the extent that there's truth to it, no one can ever force. Uh, us to compromise our own faith and our own integrity. That choice is entirely ours. Right. Well, I really appreciate this conversation and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, work on this project uh, with you. I'm uh, looking forward to the, uh, the book getting wide circulation and I hope uh, you've, I hope that you're successful, as successful persuading others as you were in persuading me. Well, I, I appreciate that and appreciate not just this conversation, but the whole exchange we've enjoyed for a little while now, Pastor. I think right. very highly of you. Thank you. Thank you. Click the link in the show notes to get your copy of Misinflation, the truth about inflation, pricing, and the creation of wealth. Available now from Canon Press.